I think what makes Macbeth really exciting is actually speed. Uh, it's one of the shorter Shakespeare tragedies. It doesn't really have any subplot. It's got a thriller-like kind of intensity as it as it unrolls, as, as it unfolds before us. And I think that's I think that gives it um, a real narrative interest, a real structural uh, in, interest. So I think in a way Macbeth has got the lexical verbal palette of a horror film. Uh, it's about blood. It's about darkness. These are all the sort of generic traits of of, of horror uh, and of you know that that kind of uh, that kind of world. And and Macbeth knows that himself really, or, or anticipates that uh, about the 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 rookie wood, uh, the idea of of dusk and the kind of spookiness or an eeriness about um, uh, that half light, um, the moral and, and and physical half light of of dusk. So. I think that's a really important set of, of images which tell us something about the genre and the, t- and the tone of the play. Hi, I'm Emma Smith. I'm Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford in the UK. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're speaking with Professor Smith about one of Shakespeare's most well-known and loved plays, Macbeth. Written around 1606, Macbeth is about a warrior lord living in medieval Scotland. At the play's beginning, Macbeth helps stop a rebellion against the Scottish king, Duncan. But very shortly afterwards, Macbeth kills King Duncan so that he can seize the throne himself. I think one of the ways it differs from other tragedies is that the it really brings out that the decisive actions start are, are at the beginning, not at the end. So we tend to think of a tragedy as um, defined by its end point, the end point of, of of the death of the character or something, and that's what shapes the narrative. Uh, it's really at its most electric, I think, in the first half, not the second, uh, and that's a slightly different structure, maybe, from some of Shakespeare's other tragedies. That structure means that most of the play is concerned not with the thought process leading up to this dramatic murder, but with all the effects that flow from it. And these effects create a world of horror. Macbeth not only murders his cousin, King Duncan, but also goes on to murder his closest friend, Banquo, and then another man's wife and children. This unfolding violence raises a profound question – How can Shakespeare give us one of literature's most memorable explorations of evil and guilt through the character of Macbeth and still make his death tragic? We'll explore that question in our next episode. The play opens with thunder, lightning and a gathering of three witches. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. Battles are raging in Scotland. King Duncan is under attack by invading armies and traitorous Scottish lords, including the Thane of Cawdor. But Macbeth defeats these forces, and Duncan gives orders that he be made the new Thane of Cawdor. Then, out on the heath, Macbeth and his comrade Banquo encounter the witches. What are these? Banquo wonders. 
Questions about witchcraft were very much alive when this play was written. The English king, James I, who was also king of Scotland, had written a book on witchcraft and participated in witch trials. But it's not clear exactly what these women are. The stage directions call them witches, but Macbeth calls them the weird sisters. Do they really have supernatural powers? What kind of powers? Macbeth especially wants to know because the witches prophesy that he will become Thane of Cawdor and that he will become King of Scotland. When Macbeth learns that the first prophecy has come true, he wonders if the second might as well. And Shakespeare does a really clever thing in the construction. Um, in, In watching the play, the king hears reports from the battle. He hears that the Thane of Cawdor has been a traitor and that Macbeth and Banquo have been really splendid, frighteningly splendid generals, particularly Macbeth. So he takes the thaneship of Cawdor away from the traitor and he gives it to the general, to Macbeth. And so when the witches, which is the next scene in the play, when the witches say that Macbeth will be Thane of Cawdor, we already know that that's true. And we already know it's true by quite unsupernatural means. So for us, that doesn't seem magical. It seems that they know something rather than that they make something happen because we know it's already happened. But when Macbeth encounters them, uh, he hears them you know, say something about him and it is immediately, it immediately comes to be true. Immediately, the, the idea that uh, immediately their prophecy comes true, I think makes him feel that the the second prophecy that he will be king will also, is also inevitably going to come true. This sequence of events makes it seem to Macbeth as though the witches really can see the future. But his expectation that he will become king soon comes up against an unexpected obstacle. King Duncan names his oldest son, Malcolm, as heir to the throne. Modern readers might expect a monarch's throne to pass to their oldest child, but this wasn't always the case. There was a historical King Macbetha of Scotland who reigned from 1040 to 1057. Shakespeare found his story in Raphael Holinshed's Chronicles of England, Scotland and Ireland. Holinshed writes that the historical Macbeth was sore troubled when Duncan made Malcolm his heir. In Scotland at that time, rulers could choose their heir and they often chose a brother or a cousin. Macbeth is Duncan's cousin so it would have been entirely possible, even expected, for the brave war hero Macbeth to be named heir to the throne. When Macbeth sees that he will not simply become king, he starts wondering if he could make himself king. His wife wonders the same thing. When Lady Macbeth hears that the witches have promised her husband the throne, she summons dark spirits to come fill her with direst cruelty so that she can convince Macbeth to do whatever is necessary to attain the crown. And what is necessary is to kill King Duncan. Macbeth initially agonises over this possibility. In a famous soliloquy in Act One, he ponders all the reasons why he should not kill Duncan. Duncan is his king, his family member, his guest, and a virtuous ruler. Macbeth realises that to kill such a man would be a terrible act, 
and at first it seems that he convinces himself to abandon the plan. But when he tells this to Lady Macbeth, she argues fiercely with him, and by the time the scene ends, he has been persuaded to go ahead with the murder. That night, Lady Macbeth waits excitedly for news. Macbeth returns to her with bloody daggers. The deed is done. Duncan is dead, but Macbeth almost wishes he wasn't. Macbeth is fearful, jumpy, and imagines that he hears a voice saying that Macbeth shall sleep no more because of what he'd done. His wife thinks he's overreacting and tells him, a little water clears us of this deed. But when Macbeth contemplates his bloody hands, he fears the blood and the guilt can never be washed away. So blood is really running in this play. It's it, it, that there is real blood. What bloody man is that? We hear right at the beginning when the, the injured captain comes to tell us as a, as a messenger from the field. So blood is the, the blood of battle sort of seeps into the domestic sphere into the in, into the castle into the home life uh, of the uh, of the macbeths and the, the 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 idea that blood can't be washed off uh, that the bloody hands uh, can't be cleaned that's perhaps the play's most m- most potent image the image that it's really given uh, to subsequent ways of thinking about about guilt uh, it seems like it's a metaphor, doesn't it? The bloody hands. But here in the play, it's, a- it's absolutely literal uh, as well as metaphorical. The next scene strikes an oddly comic note. A drunken porter pretends to be letting people through the gates of hell. Knock, knock, who's there in the other devil's name? Faith, here's an equivocator that could swear in both the scales against either scale, who committed treason enough for God's sake, yet could not equivocate to heaven. Oh, come in, equivocator. For Shakespeare's audience, the references to equivocation in a play about someone killing the king would have called to mind a real-life equivocator who helped organise a conspiracy to kill King James, the gunpowder plot. So the gunpowder plot was a plot um, by English Catholics to blow up the king and his um, privy council at the opening of Parliament. Uh, And uh, the person who's most famous to history about that is Guy Fawkes. Um, but the, these conspirators were in a cellar uh, under under the Palace of Westminster, uh, ready to to, to uh, explode this uh, gunpowder. They were fa- they were found. Uh, the plot was was uh, un- uncovered, and that and it never happened. Um, it's really interesting for us, I think, in the uh, late twentieth and twenty first century. This the Catholic, English Catholics. Um, and the the fear of their of extreme radical Catholicism is quite familiar to us as a the sort of urban fear of terrorism. The great equivocator of the gunpowder plot was a Jesuit priest named Henry Garnet, who wrote a work called Treaties of Equivocation. To equivocate means to speak in ambiguous terms that conceal the real truth. The idea of the Catholic enemy concealing a dangerous plot was alarming to English Protestants. And the ambiguity of equivocation, as we'll see, is crucial to what happens later in the play. 
the porter lets in a group of Scottish lords who soon make the horrifying discovery that King Duncan is dead. The king's sons flee from Scotland, fearing that they might be murdered next. In their absence, Macbeth is crowned the king. The witch's prophecies are fulfilled. It would seem that Macbeth has all he could want. But his victory also appears to be Scotland's downfall. So certainly Shakespeare wants to present Duncan as a saintly king whose murder is uh, disrupts the whole natural framework. Um, there's a terrible storm, you know, the animals all turn on each other and all, all those sort of portents of, of disruption we get in the, in the death of Duncan. It is almost as if Macbeth's unnatural crime has undone not just Scotland's political order, but the natural order of the whole world. And strangely enough, becoming king seems to undo Macbeth too. Instead of being joyful, he is plagued by doubts and fears. Macbeth has gotten rid of Duncan, but with this murder, he has made an enemy of Banquo, who seems to have guessed the truth about Duncan's death. When Macbeth tries to eliminate one obstacle, he creates another. Uh, of course, he's trapped in a sequence of actions by which the thing that he thinks will make him safe just opens opens up another weakness, uh, another an, another line of weakness. Macbeth also remembers that the witch's prophecy said that Banquo's children would one day be kings. Macbeth decides that he can only secure his position as king by also killing Banquo and his son Fleance. Macbeth's hired assassins do kill Banquo, but Fleance escapes. The murderers break this news to Macbeth while he is entertaining the Scottish lords at a feast. When Macbeth goes back to the table, he finds a new guest there, the bloody ghost of Banquo. Haunted by his crimes, Macbeth returns to the witches to learn more about his fate. The witches give Macbeth more prophecies. They say that none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. And they tell him that he won't be defeated until great Burnham Wood shall come against him. Macbeth is encouraged, taking these prophecies to mean he can never be overcome. But the witches also show a long line of future kings, all descended from Banquo. This sight would have been welcome to King James, who identified Banquo as his ancestor. But it is not a welcome sight to Macbeth. The witches also tell him to beware Macduff, and he promptly decides that Macduff will not live. When he hears that Macduff has fled from Scotland to England, he has Macduff's wife and children murdered. But once again, this attempt to make himself safe only places Macbeth in more danger. After learning that Macbeth has killed his family, the devastated Macduff convinces Malcolm to return to Scotland with an English army to overthrow Macbeth. Back in Scotland, Lady Macbeth has started walking in her sleep, reliving the nightmarish events of Duncan's murder. She still sees blood on her hands that she cannot wash off. Out, damned spot, out, I say. What, will these hands ne'er be clean? Her guilt and grief drive her to take her own life. 
Her death prompts Macbeth's meditation on the transience and emptiness of life. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. Then Macbeth learns that his own hour upon the stage may be drawing to a close. He believed he was safe as long as Burnham Wood did not come to Dunsinane Castle, but now the wood is coming. The English army in Burnham Forest cut down branches of trees to mask their advance, so the forest itself seems to creep up on Macbeth's castle. He says that he begins to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. He had interpreted the witch's prophecy to mean that he would never be overcome. But now he realises the ambiguous prophecy didn't mean what he thought it meant. The same holds true for the prophecy that none of woman born could harm him. When Macduff reveals that he was not born in the normal way, but ripped from his mother's womb, Macbeth realises his end is near. But he's determined to fight to the end. Lay on, Macduff, and damned be him that first cries, hold, enough. These are Macbeth's last words. Macduff kills him and brings his head to Malcolm, whom the lords salute as king. All seems well. The murderous tyrant is dead. Malcolm honours his loyal followers and they support his new reign. But is this tragedy's ending really so untroubled? One argument about the way the play is structured is Macbeth disturbs the succession by um, killing Duncan and somehow interposing himself as king. So Malcolm comes back, uh, Macbeth is killed and Malcolm is uh, put on the throne and and everything is fine. I suppose in recent times we have been less satisfied by that One reason we might not think everything is fine has to do with the way Malcolm begins his reign. In one way, Malcolm seems to put an end to the play's disturbing events. But in other ways, he seems to repeat them. Malcolm's language, for example, echoes the imagery used by his father Duncan at the start of the play. And so we're left wondering, will Malcolm bring peace and unity? Or will he repeat his father's mistakes? In the history recounted in Hollinshed's Chronicles, we find repetition. Malcolm's younger brother attacks him, takes the throne, and the cycles of violence continue. In Shakespeare's time, this cycle of good and bad, peace and violence, was called Fortune's Wheel. It was a model that tragedy often invoked. It quite often uses the imagery of Fortune's Wheel, so that if you're at the top of fortune's wheel, if you're a prince or something, uh, you you are quite likely to be brought you know brought down by it, uh, and that these your your fortunes are kind of turning and um, all states all states are sort of contingent, and uh, you need to be aware of of the likelihood of of, of your own downfall somehow. This kind of tragedy is purely structural. Someone high is brought low. Sometimes the prince is good, sometimes bad. Sometimes he falls through his own crimes, sometimes through bad fortune. But Macbeth himself, in spite of his crimes, 
could also be seen as a tragic figure, someone who evokes a sense of awe and pity. And by the end of the play, Malcolm, the son of the king he murdered, can call him a, a dead a dead butcher. I don't think Malcolm's uh, epitaph is one that we are meant to take uh, at face value. I think I think there is more to Macbeth than that. We'll ask what more there is to Macbeth in the next episode, when we explore how Shakespeare manages to get us to sympathise with a character who is guilty of such despicable acts. 